Well, hello there. You might want to pull up a chair, get a glass of water. Water, water, water. It's going to be pretty important in the future here. So let me get going here and pull up this file. I'm going to be talking about several things today. And let me see here. Um, how'd they get this uranium? Well, it came from mining, right? And I had some old file. I had kind of like disconnected this from my brain a few years ago. Um, and I have a clip I'll be playing you as far as the royal family. Now, we know they're royal actors. That money likely just gets fed straight into City of London, right? So um, I'll be playing a clip about how the royal um, people profit from uranium mining. So today's show will basically be about mining, okay, and how they're getting this stuff from. But along with that, I'd also like to be, I will be talking about what's going on in Indian reservations in this country and also more about the Bikini Island. Um, so there's a lot to, there's a lot of patterns here, okay? Um, none of these incidents, whether it be mining or actual dropping of bombs and, you know, they, they came back to these locations, Bikini, and they came back to the Polygon um, they came back to these Indian reservations. They've been coming back and studying these things. The catch is, is that they're not publishing the studies, right? And see how it all works. And there's a lot to this business. And so anyway, so basically no one's giving consent, right? They're all getting tricked. The natives are getting tricked. These people are getting tricked. Everybody's getting tricked, right? That's how it works. You get tricked by thinking these people are nice, and then when you find out that they're evil psychopaths, well, the trick's already been pulled, right? Because there's a lot to do with these, with the wind in dropping these bombs. And, um, for example, I read reports in the um, Polygon that they, with intent, set these bombs off when they knew the wind was blowing in certain directions, okay? Villagers were also told to stand outside of their properties or their homes or whatever before the blast took place so these people would get the highest blast possible. So these patterns appear to continue through each one of these events, okay? And so, in the wind, for example, in the bikini, they were like, oh, whoops, didn't mean for it to blow over that way. You know, the polygon, they didn't admit that there were a million people living in that area. Whoops, big mistakes, right? Are they mistakes? <laughs> well, I would, these people are either the biggest idiots on the earth or the most evil people on earth. You're going to have to decide. For example, um, in the polygon, they set up a new place to help these people. Well, too bad it's too far away from anybody to get to it, right? Big, big fancy place. Well, the people live in villages. They don't, they're not exactly riding around in cars and stuff. So, um, yeah, say you're going to do something. And here's the thing. All that money to build this place of the Polygon to help these people, how much of it actually got fundraised? How much of it actually ended up there? And it's not going to benefit anybody. So, anyway, so I also... On my blog over on psychopathinyourlife.com, if you were reading it, you might have noticed the type was shifting around because what I did was, while I was over there updating things on the, it's in, it's in this section called blog, not hard to find, and what I did was I put together a timeline um, while I was at it. And kind of interesting that in 1939 in September, so we, ha we know this letter had to have been written ages before that, right? 
They write the letter 1939, September, expressing their concern about Germany and this bomb and stuff, or Germany messing around with radioactive, and send that to Roosevelt. And one month later, World War II is declared, and that leaves the U.S. to get busy building ammunition and, and war, <laughs> war tools. It left the U.S. able to go around and dinker around with all this uh, bomb stuff. And then, of course, they staged the uh, fake bombing of Pearl Harbor to then go and test what the U.S. had been secretly doing all this time <laughs> to build these bombs and stuff. See how it... See how it all starts to play together when you start to look at the dates? It's like, none, sorry, let me plug this thing in. None of this is a mystery, and none of it is a coincidence, right? Well, if it's a coincidence, these people really stumble on a lot of things. Okay, so, so go check out the blog, because I've, I've, I've broken down all the dates from when they discovered all this radioactive stuff, when they discovered this, when they did that, and all that kind of stuff. And I'll also be... After this, I'll be reading a very interesting piece that was written about the um, pretty huge issues with Indian reservations in this country. And I would like to advise you of one thing. Remember before I was talking to you about getting one of those distilled water machines? Well, <clears throat> um, I looked. There's two different kinds of distilled water machines, okay? The $60 or so one has a plastic container to grab the, for it to drip the water into, okay? The more expensive $100 one has a glass container. Two issues. I'm not sure leakage from plastic is our biggest issue right now, right? And so the $50, $50 cheaper one for the plastic, plastic holder seems like a better deal because what happens if you break the glass one? They're going to charge you $50 for a, remove a new one. So to replace a broken glass when you pay $50. I'm not, I, wouldn't, I, I was all hung up on the plastic at first, but then I thought, what am I thinking about? Does it really matter if you're getting a little plastic in there? Because I, So I did a search. So I am just, you have to do your own research, okay? Do not take my word for this, okay? I did a quick search. I asked, will distillation of water remove uranium? And it said, yes. Not only were, will distillation remove most of the uranium in your water, it will also remove other contaminants often found in the same regions, such as arsenic and nitrates. There are third-party test results for uranium and have found that their machines are able to recover over 99% of uranium found in water. Now, is this true? I don't know. Are they talking about removing natural uranium versus the uranium spilled all over this country? I really don't know this, okay? If I were you, I'd look a little bit closer. And if I were you, I would get pretty busy on your water. So anyway, so because I can't cover it all... I'd like you to jot down a couple of great articles to take a look at, okay? Um, there was one. The legacy of uranium development on or near Indian reservations and health implications rekindling public awareness. The legacy of uranium development on or near Indian reservations and health implications rekindling public awareness. There's, she did a, a person named Anita Nall, N-A-L-L. -L, very easy to find. Um, 
there was another very good paper called The Great Sioux Reservation at Risk from Uranium Mining in South Dakota. Eastern Sioux Concerned by Nuclear Power Plant and Waste. Okay, let's get to a little bit of the Bikini Island lies, okay? Um, because it's all about consent, right? There's movies out there of the people in the Bikini Island smiling and being so happy to leave their island, right? Well, they were horrifically lied to to begin with, okay? The U.S. brought over, once, once they landed on Bikini, before the U.S. got there, missionaries had been there, okay? So the local people were kind of already kind of accustomed to foreigners showing up on their little areas, right? Well, so when the U.S. military showed up with this proposal, it was for the people on Bikini Island to help save the world by order from God, okay, you get the connection, missionaries were just there blabbing about God to these people, now all of a sudden the U.S. military shows up, and the really insane part of this is that then we saw pictures of them being packed up and leaving their island, right, after the singing and dancing and the ceremonies and stuff, well, what happened was this, the reality, the U.S. military showed up with camera crews, I think it was National Geographic, I can't remember, but they had camera crews, so for one month, one month before they started tossing bombs and making these people move from their island, they photographed them, did videos of them, and the people were saying, oh, they, they made us do these same scenes over and over. We were confused. It is marketing, all about marketing, right? So they spent an entire month there getting these people to keep reenacting scenes like they had them reenact them leaving the island they had them sit around singing and smiling laughing about getting ready to leave their island for the good of the world <laughs> yeah something else right so anyway so there was this piece i found that was kind of interesting that i'll read to you it said um the bikininian community was the most affected population by this project at bikini they were the ones to endure the harsh, immediate, and long-term impacts that the U.S. military created. At first, the Bikinians had this positive perception of the presence of the United States. They were captivated by all the technology and publicity that the U.S. was bringing to the island. This operation getting major media attention brought cameras onto the island where the Bikinian community was filmed where their ceremonies were captured. One ceremony being a farewell to their ancestors. I'm reading from this person. It's not me, okay. One ceremony being a farewell from their ancestors, which I believe should not have been filmed for the entertainment of others. All Bikinians should have been left alone to hold their ceremonies and not influenced to make alterations to traditions. If there was any capture to their social and cultural life, then it should have been respected, not taken back to the United States to be badly written about. The United States really only showed the Bikinians, showered the Bikinians with attention before their departure from the atoll. It was the only time the United States ever executed an action involving them with such swiftness, energy, or commitment, which shows that the U.S. was simply putting on a front 
so that no rebellion against the operation before the displacement. One of the first effects experienced by the Bikinians was the poorly planned relocation. Roguerique, one of the islands, which was much smaller, and they're only given a small amount of food and water supply. The Bikini community was not content content with the new relocation site, yet the U.S. publicized that the community was satisfied. The displacement caused a loss in livelihood due to the lack of food security, water resources, and living space. The Bikinians quickly learned that the area was inadequate, inadequate to sustain them and requested to leave and return to Bikini. The U.S. Navy denied their request until it could no longer be avoided because of bad publicity. They gave Bikinians other options of relocation, and they decided on Killikili, an atoll in the Marshall Islands, was still not able to sustain their livelihood. One major issue with Killikili was there was no lagoon or fishing grounds that the Bikinians heavily relied on. Killikili was a small island that lacked food supply. The Bikini community began returning to the atoll in 1969, once it was deemed safe to live on. In the late 1970s, multiple radiation surveys showed large amounts of radioactive elements still on the island. The consumption of radioactive elements resulted in an increase in diseases for local populations. Bikinian communities now have to experience the health risks of being exposed to radioactive elements years later. The island, <clears throat> excuse me, the island was declared inhabitable in 1978 and the Bikini community relocated to Enu, E-N-E-U. Now, no one is allowed to live on Bikini at all due to the high levels of radiation. Despite the multiple relocations, the Bikini community has still not been able to sustain itself, leaving them to rely on outside food and aid. One of the first social injustices that was that which was disregard for the transparency with the Bikinian community. The Bikinians were misled into thinking they would benefit from the nuclear testing. In fact, they were told that this operation would allow allow for greater development and peace. One of the conditions for the nuclear testing was that they be conducted far away from U.S. populations, meaning that the United States was aware of the potential risks that nuclear tests could have. Yet they were willing to put other communities in more vulnerable conditions at risk. It shows a lack of care in the rights and protection for the Bikini community and their island environment. The Bikini community was left to suffer from malnutrition on Ronerick. Despite the various documentations of the people suffering from lack of resources, assistance was sent much later. Yet that assistance was not adequate. 
the United States allowed the Bikinians to get stripped away from their power by constantly neglecting their needs and not providing proper reparations. The Bikinians have endured so much loss, violations, and injustices that have led to the loss of their identity, culture, and livelihood. They continue to struggle with the impacts that Operation Crossroads created and fight for justice. Well, I think one thing I will tell you very briefly here is, um, let me pull it up here. I updated over on the website um, this um, deal in Bikini Island because it's pretty significant. Um, what's going on is um, there was a cleanup on the island and that cleanup meant that I'm just going to be talking off the top of my head. Go look at my blog. I've got a lot of information there for you to take a look at. Okay, I, I found some excellent timelines that I incorporate into there. And you'll notice that there's some fuzziness in, I don't know, I had this kid set up the format, and I don't understand what the format is, so I just did my best to plug in the information. So if you find a few things that look a little screwy, well, that's the way it ended up. So anyway, so over on this island, there's this thing called the dome the dome okay and what's on the dome because on the blog i have all of these characters i have their pictures i have the media releases i have when they did this when they did that okay so let me get down here to the dome the dome is the area what they did was they had to find a place to get rid of all this nuclear waste after they blew the hell out of that area right so, in their always great planning, what they did was they lied to the U.S. soldiers, and I talked about this in the last show a little bit about that, but they lied to the soldiers about going there. And I dug up some more information since that last show. Um, let me see. So, yeah, everybody seems to know that this thing is leaking, okay? It's leaking right now. I mean, this is 2023. It's leaking. And I also dug up on my blog a lot of old news articles and stuff about, you know, the Japs and that kind of stuff. Okay, so the dome, let me see here. So they scooped up contaminated soil along with other radioactive waste materials such as military equipment, concrete, and scrap material. What they did, it all went into the Runit, R-U-N-I-T, dome, which the servicemen covered with concrete, okay. The center holds enough radioactive waste to fill 35 Olympic-sized swimming pools. So, what's the deal with the dome? Well, logically, you would have put cement on the bottom before you throw all this stuff in there, right? But they put the cement on the top. So, what's going on to now is that um, it's leaking. And, um... Oh, this guy, these people are all really on our side, aren't they? This Ken guy, a marine, marine radiochemist who was planning to sample the soil near the dome, recently told Business Insider <clears throat> that the concern over radiation levels could be overblown. <laughs> well, I don't know. It doesn't seem overblown to me, okay? And there is an article I posted over there called A Ticking Time Bomb, The Concrete Dome of Runit Island. Once you know the words to look for, R-U-N-I-T Island is where this dome is, Okay. And um, one of the major problems, it was not 
sealed with concrete. As a result, radioactive waste is slowly and continuously leaking into the ocean. Um, so what happened was um, they basically did such a horrible job. The water's lapping over the top of it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of information there. So go take a look. I'm not going to get into it all right now. So right now what I'm going to play you is this clip. And, and after this clip, let me see here. After this clip will be the, um, I'm reading you a very interesting piece about the destruction on the land of the Indians in this country. And you have to consider all of these mines all over this place. This stuff is, <clears throat> is leaking all over the place, right? So let me not belabor that. <clears throat> and um, let me see here. This clip, this clip is called, <coughs> excuse me, How Clean Elizabeth II Profits from the Arms Trade. Um, because it's the whole the whole process, right? It's the mining of the uranium is just such a filthy part that it needs to be documented because the bombing is one thing, but how they get the uranium is just something else. So let me, let me just play this clip, and then I'll let you think for yourself. These people are also willing for money to get this on themselves, right? They're not escaping this stuff either. That's the part that I just can't get over, right? So yeah, and remember, this really isn't, Queen Elizabeth isn't who we think she is, right? These are royal actors. So anyway, so let me just be quiet here and play this clip for you, and then um, I'll be back later with something else. I mean, not necessarily in this show, but later. So if I don't say goodbye at the end, this <clears throat> because I'm just going to patch together these two clips. So here we go. Let me get my little speakers over here. Everybody's sleeping, so we shouldn't have any interference. Okay. Okay, so how Queen Elizabeth profits from the arms trade. Why can't I hear it? Wait a minute. Oh, it would help if I plugged it in. Wait a second. <laughs> okay. Okay, there we go. advises she must seem the ultimate insider trader as thanks to her royal boxes she's ahead of the game having advanced knowledge of any country's ups and downs useful as in racing to those buying and selling on the Queen's accession it was said she was worth 300 million now the royal nest eggs said to be 17 billion her investments in BP and in Rio Tinto Zinc mean, very simply, she profits from petrol and uranium, and her subjects get ill. After the Queen had been the first person to switch on nuclear power at Calder Hall in Cumbria in the 1950s, the world's first nuclear power station was followed by Sizewell B, and the Queen was advised to invest in uranium. Notwithstanding any greenwash, royal gamblers have few ethics, and, despite a feigned concern, royalty knows that arms are good investments. And since those with money like making more, 
they risk the Earth's transformation into a Death Star through shells and bombs and cruise missiles, all tipped with depleted uranium, so they pierce more easily through the heavy armour and the fortifications of perceived enemies. Air, water and soil are contaminated when DU is used. Dr. Doug Roki, the ex-director of the Pentagon's depleted uranium project, says there is no way to decontaminate an area hit with uranium. We also know it happens forever. Therefore, when the Army personally says the food and water will be contaminated, and that's an indiscriminate killer, that makes the use of depleted uranium a crime against God and a crime against humanity. A large part of the baby boom generation had, had their immune systems compromised at birth. Dr. Jay Gould would reveal in his book, The Enemy Within, the extent of royalties' uranium investments. And their uranium wealth was hothoused by an entrepreneur, Tiny Roland, thanks to Roland's companies, Lonro and Rio Tinto. Tiny Roland asset-stripped half of Africa, and though this takeover bidder for Harrods was called the unpleasant and unacceptable face of capitalism, he was popular with the royals and the mega-rich. And Tiny Roland says he loves Africa. Because Africa has enriched him, so he would, he would love it. He definitely loves it because it has enriched him. The relationship between Tiny Rand and African presidents is not really sincere and honest. It's the relationship between the rider and the horse. It's the rider who benefits. I don't think the horse benefited at all. Anything that has been brought to light as a result of the Lonro affair, do you find any of that in any way the unacceptable face of capitalism? I can't judge because this is now uh, escalated into a, a, a political matter and and uh, I know so little about politics uh, here that I, I just can't comment. Never mind that Roland was formerly Roland Walter Führop, an unashamed member of Hitler Youth. Princess Alexandra's husband, the Queen's nephew, Angus Ogilvy, would sit on Roland's board with royal approval. The royal shares would thus finance the arming of Africa in Lonro's resource wars. African leaders who promised Lonro their strategic minerals were armed to the hilt by Ogilvy and Roland. Tiny Roland was nicknamed the Royal's Buccaneer, and how much he made them is unknown. But the conditions of his African workforces were notorious, and so Africa fueled new spurts of royal wealth. The Anti-Slavery Society reported in 1987 that in Lonro's Ashanti gold mines, 60 boys had to work almost naked in a pool of cyanide at Lonro's extractor plant in Ghana. The cyanide, used in separating out the gold, enters the body as gas, liquid or acid dust. The boys worked naked, since, on Roland's orders, this was company policy to reduce theft. In 1973, Lonro was the biggest plantation owner in Africa, controlling 98% of oil imports through its pipelines. It mined, for example, 40% of Zimbabwe's gold, and it was the largest agricultural producer. Thus, thanks to their pet buccaneer, the royal shareholders 
were recolonizing Africa by the back door. And thus, thanks to Tiny Roland's advice, their uranium holdings are now worth more than six billion dollars. But just as England that was wont to conquer others, as Shakespeare wrote, have made a shameful conquest of herself, a uranium wind can now blow back into the faces of these profiteers with their poisons being impossible to decontaminate. Thanks to uranium investors, radioactive isotopes are now found in the flesh of worms. At a Ministry of Defence weapons range in Dumfries, depleted uranium has turned the worms mutant. Worms are a pillar of ecosystems through aerating the soil and aiding the nutrient uptake of plants, whom Charles reputedly likes to talk to, though he may now need a Geiger counter before addressing his radioactive triffids in Scotland. However, there'll be no apology from the palace for any carcinogenic carnage, since DU hardening the tips of shells to pierce concrete is one of Royal Ordnance's star exports. Despite Royal Ordnance weapons that contain DU, such as those made at Fazakale, Liverpool, counting as poison gas weapons, violating the Geneva Convention, under the 1925 Geneva Poison Gas Protocol. The DU shell, which the Sovereign has shares in, is a highly mobile, indiscriminate killer. It's described as a permanent terrain contaminant, which has a half-life of 4.5 billion years. Unlike any hereditary monarchy, however historic, DU stains the environment forever and ever. Its half-life has earned it the title of a silent killer. The silent killer that will never stop killing. And there's nothing depleted about depleted uranium when you see the birth defects it causes. Swollen heads, enlarged eyeballs, dysfunctional limbs, as DU rewrites DNA codes, making them into nonsense. What this has generated is from 2004 up to this day, we are seeing a rate of congenital malformations in the city of Fallujah that is surpassed even that in the aftermath of, uh, in the wake of uh, the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that were, uh, that nuclear bombs were dropped on at the end of World War II. While the British government was waging its illegal war in Iraq, it increased the value of the royal investment. For the price of uranium, would rise 500% in six years. Its radioactive death dance turns a royal profit. So that clip is how Queen Elizabeth II profits from the arms trade. I would encourage you to look around. We owe it to these people to understand what has gone on. People have said, well, why show those pictures of those children? Well. Do you think that those children's families, they had to see those children in real time? Please, Rock. They had to show, they have to see those poor children up until the time that they die a young death. So I think that we owe it to these people to understand their legacy, and we owe it to them to stand in solidarity with them. And for once, we need to stand for something or we stand for nothing.
I think there's a little bit of a dispute over whose land this is, right? Let me tell you a little story here. This was a brilliant piece written by a man named Bruce E. J-O-H-A-N-S-E-N, Johansson. The story is called The High Cost of Uranium in Navajo Land. When Native Americans in the United States, in the Western United States, were assigned reservations in the late 19th century, many were sent to land thought nearly worthless for mining or agriculture. The year 1871, when treaty making stopped, was a time for sophisticated irrigation and before dry land farming techniques had been developed. Industrialization was only beginning to transform the cities of the eastern seaboard and the demand for oil, gas, and even coal, coal excuse me, was trivial by present-day standards. And in 1871, Madame Curie had not yet isolated radium. Before 1900, there was little interest in locating or mining uranium, which later became the driving energy force of the nuclear age. In a century and a quarter, the circumstances of industrialization and technical change have made many of these treaty-guaranteed lands very valuable, not least because of their often barren surface lies a significant share of North Americans' remaining fossil fuel and uranium sources. Nationwide, the Indians' greatest mineral wealth is probably in uranium. According to Federal Trade Commission report of October 1975, an estimated 16% of the United States uranium reserves that were recoverable at market prices were on reservation lands. This was about two-thirds of the uranium on land under the legal jurisdiction of the United States government. There were almost 400 uranium leases on these lands, according to the FTC, and between 1 million and 2 million tons of uranium ore a year, about 20% of the national total, was being mined on reservation land. Moreover, the uranium reserves on reservations land are added to those estimated on land guaranteed to Indian nations by treaty. The Indian share of uranium reserves within the United States rises to nearly 60%. The Council of Energy Resource Tribes places a figure at 75 to 80%. About two-thirds of the 150 million acres guaranteed to Indians by treaty has been alienated from them by allotment, other means of sale, or by seizure without compensation. Some of these areas, notably the Black Hills of South Dakota, underwent a uranium mining boom during the 1970s, even though legal title to the land is still clouded. Sioux leaders have refused to settle with the United States for the land. And this, this was just written a few years ago. I'm assuming it's still the fight's still going on, okay? Despite a price tag that has grown to 351 million principal and interest by 1993. About half the recoverable uranium within the United States lies within New Mexico. 
and about half of that is beneath the Nav Navajo Nation. As in South Dakota, many Navajos have come to oppose the mining, joining forces with non-Indians who regard nuclear power plants and arms pr proliferation as a twofold menace. Uranium has been mined on Navajo land since the late 1940s. The Indians dug the ore that started the United States stockpile of nuclear weapons. For 30 years after the first atomic explosions in New Mexico, uranium was mined much like any other mineral. More than 99% of the product of the mines was waste, cast aside as tailings near mines near mine sites after the uranium had been extracted. One of the mesa-like waste piles grew to a mile long and 70 feet high. On windy days, dust from the tailings blew into local communities, filling the air and settling on water supplies. The Atomic Energy Commission assured, worried local residents that the dust was harmless. In February 1978, however, the Department of Energy released a Nuclear Waste Management Task Force report that said that people living near the, near the tailings ran twice the risk of lung cancer of the general population. The Navajo Times carried reports of a public health service study asserting that one in six uranium mi miners had died or would die prematurely of lung cancer. For some, the news came too late. Esther Keyswood, a member of the Coalition for Navajo Liberation from Shiprock, New Mexico, a reservation city near Tailing Piles, said in 1978 that the Coalition for Navajo Liberation had documented the deaths of at least 50 residents, including uranium miners from lung cancer and related diseases. The Kerr-McGee Company, the first corporation to mine uranium on Navajo lands, that's the Kerr, K-E-R-R-McKee, M-C-K-E-E, -E. beginning, hey Rocco, I don't know what he's barking at, okay, let me keep going here, um, the Kerr-McKee Company, the first corporation to mine uranium on Navajo Nation lands beginning in 1948, found the reservation location extremely lucrative. There were no taxes at the time, no health, safety, or pollution regulations, and few other jobs for many of the Navajos recently home from service in World War II. Labor was cheap. The first uranium miners in the area, most of them Navajos, remember being sent into shallow tunnels within minutes after blasting. They loaded the radioactive ore into wheelbarrows and emerged from the mines, spitting black mucus from the dust and coughing so hard it gave many of them headaches, according to Tom Berry, energy writer for the Navajo Times, who interviewed the miners. Such mining practices expose the Navajos who work for Kerr McKee to between, to between, hold on one second, let me go get him under control. Because I've got, I'm only partway into this, so.
get that drum 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 of that barking out of my ears. Okay, what's so disturbing out here, huh? I don't know what's going on around here. Let me get back in here. Okay, now. Okay, Rock, now you get over to your own space now. We're done with you for now. Okay, I think we got that settled. I'll continue on. Labor was cheap. Labor was cheap. The first uranium miners in the area, almost all of the Navajos, remember being sent into shallow tunnels. I guess that was a way of saying, hey, thanks for your service for being in the U.S. military, right? They loaded the radioactive ore onto wheelbarrows and emerged... Oh, I already talked about this part. Okay. Such mining practices exposed the Navajos who worked for Kara McGee to between a hundred and a thousand times the limit later considered safe for exposure to radon gas. Officials for the Public Health Service have estimated these labels, levels of exposure. No one was monitoring the Navajo miners' health in the late 1940s. Thirty years after mining began, an increasing number of deaths from lung cancer made evident the fact that Kerr McGee had held miners' lives as cheaply as their labor. As Navajo miners continued to die, children who played in water that had flowed over or through abandoned mines and tailing piles came home with burning sores. Even if the tailings were to be buried, a staggering task, radioactive pollution could leak into the surrounding water table. A 1976 Environmental Protection Agency report found radioactive contamination of drinking water on the Navajo Reservation in the Grants, New Mexico area near a uranium mining and milling facility. Doris Bunting of Citizens Against Nuclear Threats, a predominantly white group that joined the CNL, and the National Indian Youth Council to oppose uranium mining supplied data indicating the radium-bearing sediments had spread into the Colorado River Basin, from which water is drawn for much of the Southwest. That's the Colorado River Basin, okay, <laughs> where a lot of people drink water. Through the, operation, through the op opposition to uranium mining in the area among Indians and non-Indians alike runs a deep concern for a long-term poisoning of land, air, and water by low-level radiation. It has produced demands from Indian and white groups for a moratorium on all uranium mining, exploration, and milling until issues of untreated radioactive tailings and other waste disposal products are faced and solved. The threat of death, which haunted the Navajos, came at what company came at what company public relations specialists might have deemed an inappropriate time. The same rush for uranium that has filled the Black Hills 
with speculators was coming to the Southwest as arms stockpiling and the anticipated needs of nuclear power plants drove up demand and the price for the mineral. By the late 1978, more than 700,000 acres of Indian land were under lease for uranium exploration and development in an area centering on Shiprock and Crow Point, both on the Navajo Reservation. Atlantic Richfield, Continental Oil, Exxon, Humble Oil, Homestake, Kerr-McKee, Mobile Oil, Pioneer Nuclear, and United Nuclear were among the companies exploring, planning to mine, or already extracting ore. During the 1980s, the mining industry subsided somewhat as recession and a slowing of the nuclear arms race reduced demand. Some ore was still being mined, but most of it lie on the ground, waiting for the next up upward spike in the market. As a result of mining for uranium and other materials, the United States Geological Survey predicted that the water table at Crown Point would drop a thousand feet and that it would return to present levels 30 to 50 years after the mining ceased. Much of what water remained could be polluted by uranium residue, the report indicated. Local residents rose in anger and found themselves nearly ambushed by the white man's law. The Indians owned the surface rights. The mineral rights in the area are owned by private companies such as the Santa Fe Railroad. If the water supply is deleted, then this crown point will become a ghost town, said Joe, a Navajo attorney. The only people left will be the ones who come to work in the mines. And that uranium boom is an issue of spiritual and physical genocide. We are not isolated in our struggle against uranium development. Many Indians people are now supporting the struggles of the Australian Ab Aborigines and the black indigenous people of the Nambai, Southwest Africa, against similar uranium developments. We have recognized that we are facing the same international beast. Thanks to its location between the United States media capital, New York City, and its political capital, Washington, D.C., as well as the coincident opening of the movie, The China Syndrome, Three Mile Island was America's best publicized nuclear accident. It was not the largest such accident. The biggest expulsion of radioactive material in the United States occurred July the 16th, 1979 at 5 o'clock a.m. on the Navajo Nation, less than 12 hours after President Carter had proposed plans to use more nuclear power and fossil fuels. On that morning, more than 1,100 tons of uranium mining waste tailings gushed through a packed mud dam near Church Rock, New Mexico. With the tailings, 100 million gallons of radioactive water gushed through the dam before the crack was repaired. By 8 a.m., radioactivity was monitored in Gallup, New Mexico, nearly 50 miles away. The contaminated river, the River Puerco, 
P-U-E-R-C-O, showed 7,000 times the allowable standard of radioactivity for drinking water below the broken dam shortly after the breach was repaired, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The few newspaper stories about the spill outside of the immediate area noted that the area was sparsely populated and that the spill poses no immediate health hazard. Since 1950, when a Navajo sheep herder named Patty Martinez brought a strange-looking yellow rock into Grants, New Mexico from nearby Haystack Butte, the area boomed with uranium mining. So this was strange style rock into Grants, New Mexico. Okay, Grants styled itself the uranium capital of the world as new pickup trucks appeared on the streets and mobile home parks grew around town, filling with non-Indian workers. For several years before the boom abruptly ended in the early 1980s, many workers in the uranium industry made 60000 or more a year. The local newspaper displayed an atomic logo and blamed the publicity that followed excuse me and blamed the publicity that followed the spill on Jane Fonda and the anti-nuclear weirdos who have scared the hell out of people. While no one in New York or Washington DC had much to worry about, the Navajo and white residents of the Rio Puerco area did. The area is high desert, and the Rio Puerco is a major source of water. The LA Times sent a reporter to the area a month after the spill. By that time, United Nuclear Corp., which owns the dam, had cleaned up only 50 of the 1,100 tons of spilled waste. Workers were using pails and shovels because heavy machinery could not negotiate the steep terrain around the Rio Puerco. The cleanup was limited and frustrating. Where were cleanup crews going to put 1,100 tons of radioactive mud when the next substantial rain would leach it back into the, into the river cores? Along the river, officials issued press releases telling people not to drink the water. They had a few problems. Many of the Navajo residents could not read English and had no electricity to power television sets and radios. Another consumer of the water, cattle, they don't read either. An unknown number of livestock died from consuming radioactive water. This James Bartlett of New Mexico Citizens for Clean Air and Water expressed perplexity over the lack of attention paid to the accident. About 80% of the radioactivity activity in uranium ore remains in the tailings, he said. That's tailings, T-A-I-L-I-N-S. You look for that word, you find it all. The radioactivity which remains in the piling of tailings after 600 years is greater than that remaining in nuclear power plants after 600 years. So these tailings laying around are more radioactive than the stuff laying around plants for 600 years. I'll continue on. After the Rio Puerco spill and the collapse of demand for uranium in the early 1980s, Grants, New Mexico dropped its nickname as uranium capital of the world 
and began promoting itself as a haven for retirees under the new slogan, Grants and Chants. A report from the New Mexico Environmental Improvement Division said that while the spill had been potentially hazardous, its short-term and long-term impacts on people and the environment were quite limited. While it issued these soothing words, the same report also recommended that ranchers in the area avoid watering their livestock in the Rio Puerco. The same report noted that the river water was not being used for human consumption in Okay, the same report noted that the river water was not being used for human consumption and the extent to which radioactive and chemical constitu constitutions of these waters are incorporated in livestock tissue and passed on to humans is unknown and requires critical evaluation. <laughs> yeah, cows eating radi cows drinking radioactive water, that could be a problem, right? The report also said that the accident's effects on groundwater should be studied more intensely. Several Navajos said that calves and lambs were being born without limbs and other severe birth defects. Other livestock developed sores, became ill, and died from drinking from the river. Tom Charlie, a Navajo, told a public meeting at the Lupon Charter House that the old ladies are always to be seen running up and down both sides of the Rio Puerco wash trying to keep the sheep out of it. The Center for Disease Control examined a dozen dead animals and called for a more complete study in, in 1983, then dropped the subject. more problems began to appear. A, a waste pile in the United Nuclear Mill, which had produced the waste that gushed down the Rio Puerco in 1979, was detected leaking radioactive thorium into local groundwater. On May the 23rd, 1983, the state of New Mexico issued a cease and desist order to United Nuclear to halt the radioactive leakage. The company refused to act, stating that its leak did not violate state regulations. Allendale and Appalachian, two insurance companies that were liable for about 35 million payment to United Nuclear because of losses related to the accident. They sued the company on the belief that it knew the dam which burst was defective before the spill. The dam was only about two years old at the time of the accident. Along the Rio Puerco, several ranchers reacted to state assurances that the spill left no long-term effects by selling their land for millions of dollars to the federal government. The ranchers sold out under the 1974 Relocation Act, 1974 Relocation Act, meant to move Navajos from the former joint use area claimed by the Hoppies. The land was purportedly acquired to relocate Navajos who had lost their home in the land dispute with the Hoppies. The Navajos asked the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, 
the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Relocation Commission for assurance that the land was safe. All three declined to provide the requested written assurance to the Navajos. The Navajos raised several questions, including the extent of the contamination in underground aquifers, the extent of remaining radioactivity in surface waters and soils, the effects of windblown dust from the contaminated area, and the long-term effects of the contamination on livestock and people in the area. The enormous spill of nuclear waste from the Rio Puerco was but one incident in a distinctly nuclear way of life in Navajo land. The nuclear mining legacy of 30 years blows through the outlying districts of Shiprock, New Mexico, the Navajo's largest city on windy days. The hot, dry winds shave radio radioactive dust from the tops and sides of large tilings, tailings piles around the city. One of them is 70 feet high and a mile long. Until the mid-1970s, the Atomic Energy Commission assured the Navajos of Shiprock that the tailings were harmless. In the early 1978, however, the Department of Energy released a Nuclear Waste Management Task Force report which said that persons living near the tailings piles have twice the expected rate of lung cancer. By 1978, the Navajos were beginning to trace the roots of a lung cancer epidemic, which had perplexed many of them since the disease was very rare among Navajos before World War II. In addition to exposure from the tailing piles, many of the miners who started America's nuclear stockpile had died of lung cancer. Although health and safety measures have improved in the mines since the 1950s due to government and popular pressure, present practices still expose workers to unhealthy amounts of radon. As for Kerr McKee, in whose minds many of the Navajos work, a company statement maintained as, long as, as, as late as 1978 that uranium-related deaths among miners were mere allegations. Lung cancer results from inhalation of radon gas, a byproduct of uranium's decay into radium, Tom Berry, an investigative series for the Navajo Times, you can look up this publication, the Navajo Times, okay, found documentation that miners who worked for Kerr McGee during the 1940s were exposed to between 100 and 1,000 times the dosage of radon now considered safe by the federal government. Harris Charlie, who worked in the mines for 15 years told a U.S. Senate hearing in 1978, we were treated like dogs. There was no ventilation in the mines. No one ever told us about the dangers of uranium. The Senate hearings were convened by Senator Pete DeMickey, a New York, New Mexico Republican, who was seeking compensation for disabled uranium miners and for the families of the deceased. 
The miners who extracted uranium from the Colorado Plateau are paying the price today for the inadequate health and safety standards that were then in force. The 1979 Senate hearings were part of a proposal to compensate the miners for what investigators called deliberate negligence. Radioactivity in uranium mines was linked to lung cancer by tests in Europe by 1930. So this was obviously pretty well known information, right? Scientific evidence linked radon gas to radon illnesses existed after 1949. But measures to ventilate the Navajo mines were never taken, as the government, as the government pressured Key McKee and other producers to increase the amount of uranium they were mining. The Public Health Service recommended ventilation in 1952 but the Atomic Energy Commission said it bore no responsibility for the mines, despite the fact that it bought more than 3 million pounds of uranium from them in 1954 alone. The PHS monitored the health of more than 4,000 miners between 1954 and 1960 without telling them of the threat to their health. Now remember, they also monitored all the people over in the Marshall Islands for years too, same way they monitored the people in the Polygon for years, gathering data. Where'd that data go? Well, look no further than probably a U.S. military base. Okay, let me continue on here. So, yeah, they've been gathering a lot, a lot, lot, lot of data. They were gathering data um, in the war as far as how we reacted to death. They had to, they have to, they have to, um, study us for these things because they're psychopaths, right? (laughs) They don't know who we are. And sadly, most people have never really taken the interest to pay that much attention to who they are. (laughs) Pretty big trick that they tricked us who they were. Okay, uh, um, bills that would compensate... Oh, wait a second here. Let me back up here a second. I skipped a very important part. Dr. Joseph Wagner, a special assistant for occupational carcinogens at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, also called OSHA, a federal agency, said that of 3,500 persons who mined uranium in New Mexico, only 200 had died of cancer by the late 1970s. In an average population of 3,500 people, 40 such deaths would be expected. So they're saying, well, they only had about 200. The 160 extra deaths were not, were not the measure of ignorance, he said. Published data regarding the dangers of radon was widely available to scientists in the 1950s, according to Wagon. Health and safety precautions in the mines were not cost-effective for the companies, he said. 30 years from now, we'll have the hidden legacy of the whole thing, Wagner told Molly Ivins of the New York Times. Bills that would compensate the miners were introduced, discussed, and died in Congress for a dozen years. By 1990, the death toll among former miners had risen to 450 and was still rising. 
And also, I'd like to point out, when you die and get these diseases on reservations, you've got a long way to go to a hospital, okay? Um, and I'm not saying that I agree with hospitals, but I'm just saying that if you want to get help and you're dying of cancer on a reservation, it's very, very complicated, okay? So, um, so um, by the early 1990s, about 1,100 Navajo miners or members of their families had applied for compensation related to mining exposure. The bureaucracy had approved 328 cases, denied 121, and withheld action on 663, an approval rate, which somebody said, significantly lower than in any other cases of radiation compensation. This, this representative said that awards of compensation were being delayed by a burdensome application system developed by the Department of Justice. Miller's committee was investigating not only the Navajo death toll from radiation poisoning, but many other reports from indigenous people were willfully and recklessly exposed to radiation during the Cold War. The geographical range of purported radiation poisoning spans the globe, from the Navajos in the United States Southwest to Alaskan natives whose lives were endangered when atomic waste particles from Nevada were secretly buried near their villages, to residents of the Marshall Islands to the South Pacific, an area in which the United States tested atomic and hydrogen bombs in the atmosphere between 1946 and 1958. As investigations deepened, it appears that the treatment of Navajos was not the exception, but one example of a deadly pattern of reckless disregard for indigenous life in colonized places, human and otherwise. And the man who wrote this is Bruce E. Johansson, J-O-H-A-N-S-E-N. It's called The High Cost of Uranium in Navajo Land. And I will leave this right here for now. Well, I wish I had some clever things to say. Um, here we are. It is almost like some big marketing murder plot and all the characters, <laughs> I don't know. Have they dummied themselves down so much that they don't even understand what they're doing? I don't know and not even going to go there. All I want to say is this, is that we got here, right? Here's here's where we are. Um, should have started shouting and screaming when they hauled the first one of us off and we didn't. So I would suggest that you button down the hatches, buckle up buttercups, and I will be back with more about the entertainment side. We'll take a little lighter break from all of this stuff. Um, and in the meantime, remember, this is this is some staged, staged deal that's going on, right? And the murder plot, <laughs> normally, <laughs> normally, if you study true crime, and normally the murder plot, there's usually somebody who's out to murder somebody else or groups of somebody else's, right? So in this case, it's very unusual because it really blankets everybody, right? It blankets the people that are doing the murdering with the... Um, you know, all the things that they have going on with us, with the smart meters and stuff. Because that really, smart meters in our homes is a pretty devious plot because that actually means, what, murder on demand um, from radiation? I would advise you to look for a few things. One is that you'll notice...
probably first in your pet, so that would be breathing. Um, and I've had all of these things checked out. Like I did take Rocco to the vets because I wanted to make sure it wasn't some heart condition, but it was breathing. Um, and I also have had a radiation sore for a few years. So um, I'm sure that's getting agitated by just the constant flow coming in. So they have a really a turnkey of things. So, you know, in the past I talked about, well, you know, they're going to bring in the UN. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to speculate. I'm not going to speculate. All I can say is that information is your friend. If you could afford to get a few of those water machines because it appears, and do your own research, do your own research first. It appears like, you know, you, you might be able to help some other people, you know, it's like some tiny, tiny little people if you can get the, that uranium out of the water in the meantime. So they'd be thinking about that. Instead of sitting there paralyzed with the fear they want you to be in, start thinking about solutions. Can you afford two of those machines? You know, once you've figured out that it gets the uranium. In any case, it gets the majority of the other stuff out, okay? So let's not <laughs> act like it's worthless. So do put one foot in front of the other foot is my suggestion and just keep your head down and keep moving. Spend less time on social media. Develop your own sense of self. Stop just blindly following everybody else. Channel that energy into something that would be able to help the most vulnerable here in the near future or whenever things need to be taken care of, right? Because we can see what's going on. Pretty clear that, you know, they're willing to destroy themselves along with us. So I really would consider being prepared as your only option. Why on earth would anybody rely on these people to help us out in the near future. I really, if you can explain this to me, please do. And don't forget to go over to my website, psychopathinyourlife.com, and check out my blog. I've laid out all the dates of when they've been <laughs> cooking all this stuff up. So we owe it to these people, fellow people who have been so terribly harmed in all of this. To, I'm not going to shield your eyes from any of it. Please take a look because we owe it to them to stand in solidarity. We lost our chance to stand in solidarity when all of this started going. And now it's a little bit late to, uh, well, whatever happens is going to happen. But our time for solidarity can still be now, okay? Let's remember solidarity moving forward is going to be the key for a lot of very vulnerable people out there. So don't lose sight of that. So here we go. Mm -hmm.